Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so tonight we are talking about the providence of God. And so I want to just do a little bit of review on how these chapters are set out. So chapters 3, 4, and 5 are all related together. And there's a, a logical sequence to why these three chapters in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 3 is on God's decree. And if you think about God's decree, this is what God planned before the foundation of the world. Okay, <coughs> We looked at that a few weeks ago. Chapter 4 is on creation, that God did create the world. So his decree happened before the creation of the world. Last week we talked about the creation of the world. Now we get to chapter 5 on divine providence. This is, so how we would define providence is this. God's providence is the outworking or the execution of his eternal decree in the created world through time, space, and history. So there's a difference. Some people would say, what's the difference between sovereignty and providence? Or what's the difference between God's decree and God's providence? <clears throat> Here's the difference. God's decree is the plan he made before the foundation of the world. God's providence is the outworking of that plan in time and space, through human events, through history, through your life, in the created world. So it's kind of like this. You make a plan that you're going to go on a trip. So what do you do when you make the plan? You call, you get reservations, you plan your budget, you make all the preparations. Um, and so you make the plan, but then it's not actually executed until you get in the car, you get in the plane, and then you actually execute the plan. Now, that's a human analogy because when God makes a plan, nothing can go wrong. <laughs> like when you make a plan and go on it, a lot of things can go wrong. So God's got an eternal decree that he has planned and it will come to pass. Providence is how it works out in history. So let's read paragraph one. We are in chapter five on God's divine providence. So this would be on page 19. So paragraph one of chapter five. God, the good creator of all things. Okay, we talked about that last week, so it ties into chapter four. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, and these are key words here. There's four of them here. Upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible knowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Okay, so the providence of God is really these four verbs that the confession uses. And they all basically say the same thing. You see them there? He upholds, he directs, he arranges, he governs. So those are all basically saying the same thing. God superintends, God orchestrates, God governs, God guides, God leads, God directs. All things. 
including events, including people, and including actions. So there's nothing outside of God's providence in which he doesn't direct. Now, the founding fathers were what we would call, of the, of the United States, were what we call deists. And I think we've talked about deism before. Deism is the idea that, yes, there is a creator, and God did create the world, but when God created the world, he was hands-off and just kind of let the world go its own course, and God has no direct influence. Maybe God has to intervene from time to time to, to, to deal with some pretty big stuff, but for the most part, God is hands-off. That's not what Christianity teaches. God, Christianity teaches that, yes, God created, but God has a hand in his creation in guiding it and directing it in... Um, yeah, guiding, directing, and all, all those different things. So let's look at some scriptures that teach this. So Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And where does he do that? In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So God does whatever he wants to do in all places, in all times. Okay? Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not even yet done. So things that haven't happened yet. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my own counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will do it. So we talked about this when we talked about God's decree. God has a sovereign decree that will infallibly happen, he will accomplish it. Providence is the accomplishing of that plan in history. Okay? And so probably the best verse that we can think of is Ephesians 1.11, which says this, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, and here's, here's where providence works, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what is God doing? God is working all things. What are all things? All things, okay? Everything, people, places, events, all things, according to what? Random chance? No, according to his will. And the confession says, from the greatest to the least. Notice what he says there? From the greatest to the least. That means like from the huge world events, volcanoes, earthquakes, the big events down to the most minute of details. And how do we know that? Well, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31 says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. Okay, does God know when a sparrow falls out of the tree and dies? Yes. What's a sparrow? There's, how, many, how many sparrows do you think die in a day across the world that fall out of trees? We don't, we don't know. I mean, probably a lot. God knows every single one of those. Okay. Now, he's saying, as minuscule and as minute as that is, guess what God even knows? How many numbers of hair are on your head? And that changes all the time because of epidermis and scalp stuff. And so, and some of us, it's different than others. I'm not going to go there. But um, he knows the hairs on your head. So God knows, governs, guides the most minute details 
the smallest things to the biggest events in world history. Okay, wars, election of presidents, the big stuff. Okay, so God is controlling, upholding, governing, whatever word. I don't know what word you like. What word do you like? Govern. Like those. Let's look at the three. Let's look at the four words that the the confession uses. There it says, God direct, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs. Which one do you guys like the best? They're all basically the same thing. Do you guys like? directs maybe or governs upholds is there a difference between them all which one do you like the best or do you need all four of them i think you need all four of them right they're a little bit different but they're all speaking about god actively keeping things together and i'm going to give you an interesting greek word here in colossians 1 16 and 17 it's talking about jesus for by him that's jesus all things were created in heaven and earth we looked at that last week Visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things what? Hold together. All, all things. There's another all things. Now, let me show you the Greek word for, for hold together and see if you guys can, I'll, I'll, I'll give you kind of the, see if you can see what this word is. It's the Greek word sustaineo. It's where we get it's where we get our English word sustains. So every Jesus is holding or sustaining all things together, which means what? If Jesus wasn't doing that, what would our world be like? You'd be flying off the planet because there's no there's no gravity. I mean, he, he holds all things together. And how is he doing that? How is he doing that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us how he's doing that. Come on now. <laughs> All right. Hebrews 1.3 tells us how he's sustaining all things. This is again talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe, how? By the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, last week we talked about how did God create? God spoke. Here it says Jesus is keeping everything, the universe together by what? The power of his word. So God created the universe out of nothing. God, and particularly Jesus here, is sustaining, upholding, controlling, governing all things in the universe to their directed end. Okay? Does that include sin? Yes, it includes sin, and we're going to get to that because the that's the great that's a great question, Chris, because the confession is going to address that, and that's the question you should ask. Because if it says all things, is there an exception to that? And the first question you should be thinking is, wow, that means that God must control, govern, uphold, direct sin. So we're going to answer how God does that. So don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. We'll get there. Okay. Now, I wanted to show you some words that the confession uses because notice it says he governs according to his infallible foreknowledge. We talked about this a few weeks ago. What does infallible foreknowledge mean? God knows everything. Does God merely know what will happen or does he ordain what will happen? He ordains both, okay? And so, and this 
leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So the fact that God governs, upholds, directs, guides, controls, should lead us to praise him. So let me just ask you a question. Do you want to worship a God who's not in control? Who doesn't? Like, remember what I said a few weeks ago about open theism? Open theism is the false teaching that says God doesn't know the future because he values human free will so much that he just doesn't know what human creatures that are free are going to decide. So there's a million different possibilities. God doesn't know what you're going to decide until you decide it. He can't even see it, what, what's going to happen. That's what open theists teach. Again, the Bible doesn't affirm that at all. So, this chapter 5 is a repeat of a lot of things that we see in chapter 3. Because remember, chapter 3 is on God's decree. When did the decree happen? Before the foundation of the world. When does providence happen? In time. So if God made a plan, he's executing it in time. So the, the two doctrines are related. It's just the timing of how it works. Decree before creation, providence in creation, okay? Now, let's go to chapter, I mean, uh, paragraph two. And here's the all things again. So, all things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence, Yet, by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or in response to other causes. Okay, let me explain what this means. When it says that God's decree, God's decree is going to happen. So if God decreed it before the foundation of the world, is it going to come to pass? Is there anything that's going to stop it from happening? No, it will happen unchangeably, according to his decree. So God does not merely, I think I said that earlier, God does not merely foresee what will happen, but instead ordains or decrees all things that will happen. <coughs> so you can say it this way, everything that comes to pass in time was part of God's decree. Now, we need to qualify that, and the confession qualifies that because the Bible qualifies that. But let's talk about first, before we qualify the all and the sin and the other questions that come up, let's, let's address two errors concerning providence. And the confession does say this. So what's the first error? You guys see it there? The second sentence, nothing happens to anyone by what? Chance. So one error would be, well, all things just happen by chance. What's chance? Like there's really no purpose behind it. It just, you know, there's really no purpose. Everything is, so like even Proverbs 16.33 says this. So when you go to Las Vegas and you, you, you gamble and you roll the dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay. So primary and secondary causation there. Who rolls the dice? You roll the dice. Who determines what numbers come up on the dice? God determines what numbers come up on the dice. When did he make that decree? Before the foundation of the world. When does it happen? When you roll the dice. So when you're playing a card game or a dice game or dominoes or whatever, 
is anything happen by chance? And we're thinking like, this is kind of minute stuff here. Who cares if God's part of a card game? God's part of a game. The point is, all things. Okay, so that helps our perspective to realize that everything we do, God is sovereignly in it. Okay, so, so one error is everything just kind of happens by chance. The other error is all things happen by fate. Now, you guys tell me, let's take a guess at this. There's a small group here tonight, so we can maybe have a little bit more discussion. What's the difference between divine providence and blind fate? What's fate? And is fate something Christian or is fate something different? What's fate? Let me give you a definition. Some of you are thinking, fate is an impersonal or mechanical force of nature that just causes things to happen. This is what Muslims believe about Allah, that there's no personal, there's no personal God, that things just happen to you because... So let's go back to the second, the second chapter on, on the essence of who God is. Is God a personal God? Does God do things for a purpose? Okay. So let's take that out. Fate would be there's no personal God involved and there's no purpose for things that happen. They just happen because they happen. So that's what some people believe. I can't tell you how many times I'm watching, I don't watch them as much as I used to, but this will, this will be kind of embarrassing. But I used to watch a lot of the Hallmark, the Hallmark movies or whatever. On, and it's amazing how many times they would say the universe must be saying, have you ever heard that in a lot of movies? Like, the universe must be telling us this is what's supposed to happen. Or I, I must not be listening to the universe. Like, they make it, they, like, if something good or bad happens to them, who do they attribute it to? The universe. Okay, that's fate. Is the universe a personal being? No. But they're saying, something's happening to me, and I don't know if I can control it. It must be the universe's way of getting my, that's what fate is. Kind of like, you can't, something happens to you, you can't control it, but it's not God. And there may not be a biblical purpose behind it. It's just kind of an impersonal force of nature. Okay? So, nothing happens by chance or fate, but by the sovereign plan of God. Now, this should guard us against the following attitudes. It should guard us against the following attitudes. Anxiety. If... God is sovereignly in control of your life and all things, should we be anxious? No. Are we anxious? Yes. If God is doing all things... So let me just say this for Christians, okay? I can't say this about non-Christians, but these, this is... If you don't remember anything else tonight, remember this about, about providence for you as a Christian. God does two things. God does everything for his glory and your good. Okay? The first is the most important, his glory. And second, your good. Now, how you define good may be different than how God defines good. It may ultimately end in good, but while you're going through it, it may not feel good. So if God is doing everything for his glory and for your good, should you be anxious? No. Okay? <clears throat> what else should we not do? We shouldn't blame others. We shouldn't play the blame game or even blame God. Some people like to blame God. Well, God did this to me and, or, um, you know, this, this is just blind fate or I just, this is bad luck or whatever. You, no, 
It's happening to you because God has a purpose in it happening to you. Also, it should guard against discontentment. Is God sovereign over where you are in life? Your job, your family, everything. You may not like it, but God is sovereign over it. And you can either be discontent and say, I don't like God what you're doing, or you can be content saying, this is what God has for me right now. It may be painful, it may not be the best, but it's what God has for me. And the second, the, the, fifth, the, the fourth one is kind of similar, complaining. It, it guards you against complaining and ingratitude. These are all kind of the same. These are all attitudes we should not have toward God in his providence. Anxiety, blame, discontentment, complaining, and ingratitude. Because if God is sovereign and he's doing all things for his glory and for your good, he knows what he's doing. Now, do you guys remember, we used to sing a song when I was in a youth pastor, and I think it may be the guy in my, in my youth group that was there, he was kind of an adult leader, and he was part of a big church in California. Um, I think he may have either written this, or it came from his church, but it was a take on that old 50s TV show, Father Knows Best. Do you guys remember the old 50s? Do you guys remember the old TV shows called Father Knows Best? Some of you old, old people, like, yeah, I remember that. Old, old, I didn't mean to say it. Like, you... you I, I don't remember watching it much, but the song was basically about, G, about our father. Father knows best. So here's the point. Does God know best? Yes. Does he know what he's doing? Do we often know what he's doing? Is he doing it for his glory? Is he doing it for our good? Then we should not be anxious. We should not blame. We should not be discontent. We should not complain, and we should not be ungrateful. Okay, now back to Chris's insightful question that I'm glad you asked because these types of statements should bring to mind these questions. So does God, or God's providence brings up some fundamental questions, okay? So these are some questions you should be thinking about, and I think Chris was thinking, first of all, does it make any difference what I do if God's got it all planned out? God's sovereign and he's got a decree and he's got it all planned out, then aren't we just puppets and automatons and just playing the script that God has written for us and it really doesn't matter what I do? That's, that's a question, okay? Is God the author of sin? And then how does any good come out of evil? And I, that's kind of maybe the question you had, Chris, is what about sin? Was your question like, if God's in control of all things, is he in control of sin? Is he the author of sin? Does he approve of sin? Is that those all the different questions you have? Okay, you're like, yes. The... Well, I mean, not. I know he doesn't approve of sin. Right, but... right, obviously. But what's God's relationship to... I just think I've made some big old mistakes in my life. I mean, yeah. purposefully sinned. Yeah. Yes, and... and you are responsible for those. And we'll look at that in... So we'll get to the well, we'll get to answer your question because it's a very very important question in this chapter or this chapter answers that. So really paragraphs 2 and 3 answer these questions. Okay? Because what it talks about there and this really I'm going to re repeat what we did in chapter 3 on God's decree, but some of you may not have been here and I think it's good to go over it again because it's it's reiterated here in paragraph 2. It says God is the first cause, but God, the last sentence there, God, by the same providence, God arranges all things occur according to the nature of second causes. Okay, primary and secondary causes. 
God is the first cause of all things. He has a sovereign decree. But we know from just personal experience and from the Bible, there are secondary causes. Let's just ask it logically. Even though God has a decree, does he do all everything? Or do humans do stuff? Like you just said, I did some pretty dumb stuff in my life. Did God make you do that? Did, or did God do that for you? Or did you do it? You did it. Okay, so there's secondary causes. So this is a repeat of what we looked at a few weeks ago, but I think it's very important to talk about it. So there are three fences or truths that qualify God's decree and I would say qualify God's providence because they're related when it comes to what the Bible says so that we don't go off the rails into faulty thinking. Okay, so these three rails can relate to God's decree as well as to providence because they're related. Remember, decree just means God's plan before time. Providence is God's execution of that plan in time. Okay, so here's, here's fence number one. And this was what we, look, we looked at in chapter three. God is not the author or the direct cause of sin. God never sins. God does not sin. God does not approve of sin. He does not author sin. And we see this from James 1, 13 to 15. No one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be, be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it, then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Okay. Now, here's where the difficulty comes in. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Can God decree that sin happen, but not be the direct cause of that sin? And you, and you have to say yes, because i got some biblical texts that actually directly teach that. Okay. If you believe Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... What do you do with that? Unless you thought God didn't know what was going to happen. That's the one answer people give. Well, God didn't know Adam and Eve were going to sin. It kind of was a surprise to him. Or you could say, let's put it this way. And we'll talk about permission. And we'll talk about permission versus decree here in just a moment. But even if you say God is not the direct author of sin, but God can ordain sin without actually sinning, what happens? What do you do with God allowing something to happen? Does God allow sin to happen? Yes, because what happened? Sin. Could God have stopped that sin from happening if he wanted to? Yes. Why didn't he stop that sin from happening? I don't know, but it doesn't mean he didn't have the power to do it. So you can't get God off the hook because he had the power to stop something and he didn't. He allowed it to happen. So he's not the direct author or cause of sin. And here's fence number two. God's absolute decree does not violate man's free will as he is still responsible and acts according to his nature. That's the most important thing. You act according to your nature. God does not have to put a gun to your head to force you to sin. You will sin because it's your nature to sin. God never forces anybody to sin. Is there any Bible verse that says God forced somebody to sin? No. He does not force us to sin. Why do we sin? We sin because of our nature. Well, you say, well, maybe I, I can't help the nature I have because I blame it on Adam. Well, yes. But God allowed Adam to sin, and that sin passed on to us. And so 
you are responsible for sinning. You sin because you have a nature that you were born with that causes you to sin. God is behind that nature. God ordains you to have that nature, but God is not directly forcing you to sin. You freely sin because you choose to sin. Does that make sense? Or is it confusing? Okay. So there's two types of God's decree. Let me go back to that blank. Now, where is it? Oh, fence number three, sorry. God uses secondary causes to accomplish his decree. Now, there's two aspects of God's, of good and evil when it comes to God's decree, okay? God's decree is effective because it directly causes all good to happen. So if any good happens, it's because God directly caused the good to happen. Let's just ask it this way. In a fallen world of sin, is there any good that's going to happen apart from God? So any good that happens is because God directly caused the good to happen. Okay, it's different with evil. God's decree is permissive in that he permits indirectly by secondary causes all the evil to happen. So God causes the good, God allows the evil. You see the difference between that? So if anything good comes about, God directly did it. If any evil comes about, God did not directly do it. He allowed it to happen. Now, what the Bible does not answer is why. Just that. That's the problem we have with the Bible sometimes. It tells us what or that, but not why or because. Now, we looked at this earlier, but let's just look at it again. Genesis 50, 20, the key passage. We looked at this back in the chapter on God's decree in chapter 3. It's at the end of the book of Genesis. Let's just recap. What did Joseph's brothers do to Joseph? They sold him into slavery. They threw him in a pit. They were jealous. Let's just, up front, did what the brothers do? Was it evil? Okay. Now, here at the end of everybody's life here, Jacob, the father, has died. And the brothers are afraid that maybe Joseph, who is the prime minister of Egypt, is going to execute justice on them because of what they did way back when he was 17 years old. And listen to what Joseph says to his brothers. He says in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, talking to the brothers, you, brothers, meant evil against me, but God meant it, the evil, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay. God meant the evil to be good. It doesn't say God used their evil. God meant their evil. So here's the way it works. God... The brothers meant evil and did evil, and they are responsible for the evil that they did. God did not make them do the evil. They did the evil on their own. But in their doing the evil, they were doing exactly what God decreed for them to do. Without God being the direct cause of their evil, them being the secondary cause of the evil, so that what happened was exactly what God wanted to happen. Okay, I know it blows your mind. But do you see that in that passage of Scripture? Okay? Same thing, you said the same thing about Judas. Did Judas do evil in betraying Jesus? Yes. Did God 
put a gun to Judas's head and said, I'm making you go betray Jesus. No, Judas did evil because it was in his nature to do evil. But was Judas doing what God had ordained him to do as the son of perdition to betray Jesus? Yes. Is Judas responsible? Yes. Is God responsible for the evil that Judas did? No. Did God decree it? Yes. Are the brothers responsible for the evil they did? Yes. Did God make them do the evil they did? No. Is, is God part of the evil they did? No. Did God decree or allow or permit whatever word you want to use for the evil to happen? Yes. Okay, so here's the hard part. The Bible teaches this truth, and we may not fully understand it because of our limitations, but it's what the Bible teaches. That God has a decree. God can decree evil to happen without being the one doing the evil and people acting freely to do evil that God decreed, and they're responsible for that evil, and it's all God's plan. Okay? And I'll answer some more questions as we go along. Because this, if this is new material, these are new thoughts, but I'm trying to give you a biblical basis for everything. Everything in this confession has a biblical basis to it. It's not just guys making up theology. So let's look at paragraph number three. In his ordinary, and that's the key word, ordinary providence, God makes use of means. Though he's free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. Okay, so what this is saying is this. God usually works through the laws of nature and human choices, usually. That's the ordinary way God works. Through natural law, the natural way of thinking. But sometimes God can override nature and human will for his pleasure. In other words, God can work a miracle if he wants to. God can suspend the natural laws if he wants to. It's not the normal way he does things, but he can. So providence usually works itself out in just the normal ebb and flow of life, decisions you make, the seasons change, the, the normal natural laws, all that stuff works. But there are certain times when God in his sovereignty says, I'm going to override human will, and I'm going to override the laws of nature, and I'm going to work miraculously or supernaturally in this situation. Okay, so let me give you an example. Acts 7, 36, when Stephen is given a speech, he said, he's talking about Moses, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, is that normal providence what you see with Moses? The 10 plagues, the Red Sea, the manna and quail, the water from the rock. Is that normal stuff? No. So that's an example of God overriding natural law to do miraculous things. Think about the virgin birth for a moment. In Luke 1, 31-35, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel the question, How will this be since I am a what? Virgin. Natural law here. I, I haven't had sex with, my, with Joseph yet. How's this going to happen? And the angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What's the normal providential way women bear children? I don't have to give you a biology lesson, but the normal way, father and mother come together, nine months later, there's, that's the normal. But 
God can say, I'm going to override that with the virgin birth and do something miraculous. So the normal way God does things is the normal way God does things. But sometimes throughout history, there have been periods where God does something supernatural, miraculous. And let's just stop right here. Is God obligated to do that in every case? Is God sovereign over when he chooses to do that? Now, the problem with like the word faith, prosperity gospel people, the extreme charismatic movement, they would say that God always does miracles and that he needs to do a miracle in your life. And if he's not doing a miracle in your life, you don't have enough faith because they would say that there's no such thing as like normal providence. It's always miraculous. And the reason your miracle hasn't happened is you haven't either prayed hard enough, you don't have enough faith, or you haven't given enough money to my ministry so I can have my $2 million jet to fly around. Now, that's really what their theology says. All right, let's look at paragraph 4. I'm just going to read off my sheet because it's supposed to be... The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in His providence, and here's your question, Chris, that His sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action, both of angels and humans. God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits, and in other ways arranges and governs, sinful actions. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. Yet he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creature, not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. Okay, now that, that paragraph addresses the question that you have. God ordained the first fall when Adam and Eve sinned, right? And every sin thereafter. But he does it in such a complex way, it says there, that God, again, is not the author of sin. God does not approve of sin. People do the sin and are responsible for the sin. Okay, let me just make it very simple for you. I'll ask it in a question. Is there anything that happens that cannot happen otherwise than the way it happened? Repeat, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that happens that cannot happen otherwise than the way that it happened? Let me ask it a different way. If God has a sovereign decree, and God foresees everything that happens. Can anything happen differently than what God foresees or decrees? Okay. Does that include sin? Because if you say no, then you're saying that something happens outside of God's plan. Because God either didn't see it or God didn't decree it. So let's ask it this way. Does God decree all things that come to pass? Does God foresee all things that come to pass? Okay, is sin included in all things? So the sin that happens had to be part of God's plan. Now, how that works out is where the difficulty comes. Are we responsible for our sins? Yes. Does God make us sin? No. Do we sin because of our fallen nature? Yes. Are there complex arrangements and methods that God does to bring about his purposes? Yes. Does God approve of the sin we do? No. Okay. So, again, does God merely allow things to happen? 
that are against his will? Or does he decree for all things to happen, even sinful things? Now, here's the big question. If God is in control of everything, then how can he hold me accountable for my sins? That's a good question, right? God is in control of everything. If God foreordains everything, if God has a sovereign plan and that sovereign plan includes my sin and I sin, am I not just doing what God planned for me to do? And how can I be accountable for something he planned for me to do? If it was his plan for me to sin and I sin, then why does he hold me accountable? And why, why, then, then, you know, I have every excuse to sin because it was part of God's plan. Okay. This is called compatibilism. The older term is called concurrence. I don't know if either one of those terms help you, but compatibilism, what's the root word of compatibilism? Like when a couple comes together and they're really jiving, they're what? Compatible, okay? So two things are compatible. What are those two things that go together? Okay, here's the two things that go together. Okay, here's what compatibilism, or two things that concur side by side. The basic definition is that God's absolute and meticulous sovereignty over all things is compatible with human freedom. Okay, so here's the two things that the Bible affirms and they go side by side. Number one, does the Bible affirm that God is absolutely sovereign? Yes. And number two, does the Bible affirm that humans are responsible and accountable creatures who act freely by their own nature? Okay. These two truths are not in conflict with one another. They're compatible. Now, I've got into so many debates, and I remember back in maybe 2015, 2016, I was having a discussion with a um, seminary professor at another seminary who, who's a different view, um, and he was trying to say, this is illogical, it doesn't make sense, it's contradictory. What's your reason for, for understanding compatibilism? And I said, here's my reason for understanding compatibilism. I can't explain it, but the Bible affirms it. It affirms those two truths side by side. Now, how they work out and how God orchestrates it, it's above my pay grade. Church doesn't pay me enough to figure that out. I don't think it pays anybody. Nobody can be paid enough to figure out how those two things work out. But the Bible affirms both truths. Okay? Are there things in the Bible that you can't quite explain, but you know they're true? Okay, the Trinity. Can you really kind of fully explain the Trinity? No. But is it true? Okay, Jesus Fully, truly God, fully, truly man in one person, the two divine, two natures. Can you explain that? No, not really. Virgin birth. Okay, there's a lot of things. The resurrection. There's a lot of things that you that we know are true that we can't fully explain or comprehend. Compatibilism or these two truths are something that the Bible affirms. Both truths side by side, they're compatible, but we may not understand how it works. And that's where the frustration comes, because what do we what do we want to know? God, you got to tell me how this works. Especially if you have an inquisitive mind. You want to know how things work. And sometimes God says, I know you have an inquisitive mind, but you don't need to know that. It's for me to know. Keeps us dependent. Now, all kinds of events, all kinds of events are included in God's decree and providence. All things. So let me give you some biblical examples of all types of things that God is sovereign over. 
So can we move forward saying God is absolutely sovereign over all things? Can we say that humans are responsible for the choices they make? Can we say we don't understand how those two things work together, but we know it's in the Bible? Okay, so let's look at some of these difficult texts. Maybe you've never seen these before. God is sovereign over good and evil. Isaiah 45, 7. This is God speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Calamity. What's calamity? Disaster. Yeah, it's not just randomly, something randomly that happens. God decrees it. It says, I create it. I do all these things. Okay, Lamentations 3, 37 through 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Well, I thought only good things come from God, not bad things. Now, remember what I said earlier? Good things come directly from God. Bad things come indirectly from God. He allows them. But here, what, what does this verse say? If it, come, if it came to pass, nothing can come to pass unless God has said it comes to pass. Is that what it says right there? And what comes from God? Both what? Good and bad. Okay, Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Can the Lord bring disaster to a city? Can God allow it? Now, we need to be careful here because I remember when Hurricane Katrina happened and New Orleans got flooded and some televangelists were saying, this is God's judgment on the wickedness of New Orleans. That God gave them what they deserved and it was God, God directly guided that Hurricane Katrina to destroy New Orleans. Okay, that may be going a little bit too far. Did God ordain the hurricane to happen? Yes. Was it direct punishment for their sin? I don't know. Are the people in New Orleans more sinful than the people in Sterling? No. Can God allow a tornado to come rip through Sterling and destroy Sterling if he wanted to? Yes. Things happen with natural disasters and calamities that, yes, God is behind, but we need to be very careful that we say God is directly behind it because of this reason. All we can say is that God sovereignly ordained it to happen for his purposes. And we may not know what those purposes are. But it didn't happen randomly. Okay, sinful acts. Now this is where you, maybe these are some passages you've never seen before. God is sovereign. God, let me put this way. God can ordain someone to do a sinful act. That person does a sinful act and God turns around and punishes that person for doing what God ordained them for them to do. You're like, what? This is in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Okay. 2 Samuel 16, 10-11. This is when um, Shimei comes out and curses David. Okay? And the reason Shimei comes out and curses David is because the Lord told Shimei to go out and curse David. So let me ask you a question. Is it a sin to curse the king of Israel? Yes. But listen to how, how it plays out here. The king said, this is David, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zuriah? 
If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, What have you done so? Or why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. God told Shimei to curse David, which was a sin to curse the king. You're not supposed to do that according to Old Testament law. And David says, it's okay if God told him to do it. And so he let the guy curse him. Okay, so God directed or told Shimei to do something sinful. But in that act of doing that, it was a rebuke upon David's leadership. Okay, now, here's a very interesting passage of scripture. You remember at the end of David's life when he wanted to count the troops and see how many he had in his army, the census? Okay, I want to show you what Samuel and Chronicles say. And you may say, this is in conflict here. This, is, this sounds like the Bible is contradicting itself. So let's just, before I read these verses, does the Bible contradict itself? Whatever we appear to see as contradictions are not contradictions. We need to figure out and dig deeper to find out what's happening here. So Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, 1 says this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So who incited David to do the, the census in that passage of Scripture? The Lord. Okay? In 1 Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel, and Satan incited David to number Israel. Okay, who was it? Was it God or Satan? Satan did it, but God allowed it. Okay. Primary and secondary causation. You have two passages of Scripture here that look like they're in conflict, don't they? One says Satan did it, the other one says God did it. Well, who, who did it? Okay. Let's go back to Job. Remember Job? Who pointed Job out to Satan? God. Who told Satan that he could go inflict Job? God. Who inflicted Job? It actually wasn't even Satan himself. It was secondary causes. The armies that came in that killed his kids. And so what you have here is God ordained for David to do something sinful. God used Satan to work in David's life to do something sinful. And you ask the question, why would God do that? And if you read the rest of it, God punishes David for doing it. Gives him three choices of his punishment. I don't know if you remember that. So let's just ask a question. You may not understand it, but we have to deal with these texts. God ordained for David to do something sinful. God allowed Satan to be the one to work in David to do something sinful. And then God turns around and punishes David for doing that sinful thing that God ordained for him to do. Does that logically make sense? But is it biblical? Okay. These are verses you probably never have read in your life before. Maybe you've never thought about deeply. All right, let's go to Isaiah. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. Because here's another example of God ordaining something sinful to happen. Somebody does something sinful, and then God turns around and punishes them for doing what God ordained for them to do. I just want to show you, these things are in the Bible. So Isaiah 10, 5 through 7. 
So this is the this is the Assyrian king. Okay, so let's just talk about Assyria is an enemy nation of Israel. Israel is acting wickedly. And let, before we even read this, let me just ask you a question. Are there times in the Old Testament when God will use a pagan nation to come in and discipline Israel? Yes, we see that all the time. Okay? Now, let's see how that plays out here in Isaiah 10, 5 through 6. We, we, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll read even further through here. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karmashat and all these things? Verse 10, as my hands reach to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? Okay, then you go down to verse 13. For he says, by the strength of my hand, this is the king of Assyria, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for my understanding, I have removed the boundaries of peoples and the plunder of their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or chirped, or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the solid magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if it's a staff should lift it who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send waste sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars, this glory of his forest and his fruitful land. The Lord will destroy both soul and body, and will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of trees in the forest will be few, that a child can write them down. Now, that's a lot of going on here. Let me explain what's happening. God says to the king of Assyria, I'm rising you up to go destroy Israel because they've been wicked. And so God ordains the king of Assyria to go attack Israel. Now, does the king of Assyria know that God is ordaining him to do that? No. What do pagan kings do when they go into foreign nations? What's in their nature? To rape, pillage, destroy. And that's what the king of Assyria does. He goes in and he destroys. And then God comes up on the back end and says, because you went in and destroyed, I'm going to destroy you. Now, if you're the king of Assyria, what are you protesting? If you knew. He didn't know. But if he knew, what would his protest be? Well, God, I'm only doing what you ordained me to do. And now you're turning around and punishing me for something you ordained me to do. Okay, so let's ask the question again. Did God ordain Assyria to go attack Israel? Yes. Did God put a gun to the head of the king of Assyria and say, you will go do this? Or did the king of Assyria do it out of his own nature? He did it out of his own nature. What did he end up doing? Destroying Israel. What does God come back and say? I'm going to punish you for what you did. Does that make sense? No. Well, I mean, does it make sense what I said? Or, okay, so biblically, God can ordain sin to happen. 
The person do the sin that God ordained to happen by not directly doing it, God, but allowing or permitting the person to do it, and then turning around and punishing the person for doing what God ordained for them to do. Now, Paul gives this argument in Romans 9, and his answer, like if you protest and say, that doesn't sound right, what's Paul's answer? Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? So sometimes when we read passages like this, our first inclination in our hearts is to say, whoa, God, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. And what should we say? God has every right to do what God's going to do, and we have no right to tell him otherwise. Do we have the freedom to tell God? I mean, we do it at times, but do we really have the freedom to tell God how to run things? No. Okay, so God is sovereign over the free actions of men. Look at some of these passages of Scripture. Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to the man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can make plans all you want, but the outcome is going to be God, God's sovereign plan. Even kings and people in authority. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's why we should be praying for our leaders. Because God can sovereignly work in their hearts to guide them to where he wants them to go. All right, what about chance occurrences? Remember I said there's no such thing as chance? Did you know there were a couple of chance occurrences in the Bible that appeared like it was chance? So in 1 Kings 22, 34, but a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the best breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I'm wounded. Okay, what is that? He, he drew his bow at random. What does that mean? I have no idea where I'm pointing this thing. And what does he do? He shoots it and where does it land? Like in the exact spot where it needed to land to wound the guy. Now, is that a chance occurrence or is that something God ordained to happen? Okay, what about Jonah when he's on the boat? The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. What's casting lots? It's drawing straws. And God ordained that the straw would go to Jonah because Jonah was the, the one that perpetrated evil and they threw him overboard. Okay. God's sovereign over the details of our lives. Job 14.5 Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Are your days determined? Are there a, you, you can't live past the day God has ordained for you to live. No matter how hard you try. Your days are determined. Alright, how much time do we have here? How many more pages do I have? I think we'll be good. So um, let's go to Ecclesiastes. It's after Proverbs and before the Song of Song. You're probably very familiar with the song to where this comes from. But Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 7 have a lot to say about God's providence over things. So... Is God sovereign over time? Over all things. Okay, so let's read 
Let's, let's sing the bird song together here in Ecclesiastes 3. To everything, turn, turn. There's a season. Turn. That's what it says there. Okay, you guys ready? For everything. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. I know I'm going fast. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. This is a representative list of everything that happens in life. And when it says there's a time for it under heaven, it means that God is sovereign over all these moments. Now, let's keep reading. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time, and he's put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in his all his toil. That is God's gift to man. Okay, this is the important one right here. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what's been driven away. What's he saying? You can't add to God's sovereign decree. You can't subtract from God's sovereign decree. And the things that have not happened yet, in God's mind, they've already happened. Because God is sovereign over all things. And what's the point of all this? So that you fear God. You worship God. You are in awe of God. So every detail of our lives. And also the affairs of nations, the big things. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. That's a big thing. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who understand. So... Who ordains what president, what king, what ruler are in the world today and at all times? God. Okay? All right. Now, before we move on to the last couple of chapters here, because these last couple of chapters are a little bit difficult to understand, are there any questions on God's sovereign decree and sovereign providence over all things? Okay. Paragraph 5 and 6 are a little bit more personal and practical to what you experience in your own life. So let's read this and let me explain. Okay? So paragraph 5. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his children for time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence upon him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. 
Okay. This paragraph addresses what I would say is God's fatherly discipline where he removes his guiding presence for a period of time so that his children will repent. Okay, so basically what it's saying is this. When you choose to sin or disobey, God may say, okay, I'm going to let you live like that for a while. And I'm going to have you experience the consequences of your sin. I'm going to have you experience my hand of discipline so that you'll be humbled and you'll return to me and you'll repent and you'll not do it again in the future. Because I'm doing this for my glory and I'm doing it for your good. Have you ever thought about that before? That God may withdraw his guiding presence in your life for a season if you choose to be rebellious? It's called discipline. We don't have to read that whole passage in Hebrews 12, but basically it says God disciplines those he loves so that the discipline will produce righteousness, a fruit of righteousness in our lives. So we talk about like Psalm 143.7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like God had quote-unquote abandoned you? Now, if you're a true Christian, does God ever abandon you? No. As a true Christian, can God say, if you're going to be in sin, I'm going to let you live in that for a while to see how it goes for you. Can God do that? Yes. Now, he's doing that as a way to bring you back to himself. But sometimes God has to take you down to the very bottom before he can bring you back up. And that would be an example of his fatherly discipline. So, do we want to go to 2 Chronicles? Let's do this. Let's, let's move forward, and then we'll come back if there's any questions, because I want to... I want to get to your questions. So does that make sense that it says there for time? Now, that time is different for every person in God's sovereignty. But he'll leave you in your sin to make you more aware of your sinfulness so that you're humbled, so that you grow closer to him, and so that you won't sin again. And he's doing this for his glory and for your good. Okay? All right, let's look at paragraph six. And this is an interesting one. Two. This is talking about unbelievers. Okay, so what's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? If you're a true believer, will God discipline you? And will he bring you back to himself? Okay. If you're an unbeliever or not one of the elect, does God necessarily discipline you or does God have a right to judge you? He's not going to discipline you if you're not his child. So this, this, this paragraph talks about how God deals with the unregenerate. So let's read paragraph 6. God is the righteous judge, sometimes, key word there, sometimes, blinds and hardens wicked and ungodly people because of their sins. He withholds his grace from them, by which they could have been enlightened in their understanding and had their hearts renewed. Not only that, but sometimes he also takes away the gifts they already had and exposes them to situations where their corrupt natures turn into opportunities for sin. Moreover, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, 
and the power of Satan so that they harden themselves in response to the same influences that God uses to soften others. Okay. This paragraph addresses the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath. The active wrath of God would be like the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven. The passive wrath of God is this, basically, God is, if you want to continue in sin, I'm going to give you over to that sin. And as I give you over to that sin, it's going to cause you to do more sin and more sin to where you become so hardened and so blinded in sin. And you see this in Romans chapter 1. So let's go to Romans 1, 18 through 25. I think I just lost a connection there, but I think it's back. Um, Romans 1, 18 through 25. <coughs> this is sometimes called judicial wrath, passive, passive wrath, judicial hardening. It's all kind of the same thing that God does in unbelievers. So look at verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal gods for images of, of resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, I want you to notice the language here in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Go down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. Three times it says what? God gave them up. God gave them over. Psalm 81, 11 through 12 says this. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. One commentator writes this, God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. Okay. There's a river of sin and God's holding the rope to make sure that you don't go full born into sin. But you're pulling, you're wanting to go towards the sin in the boat. And God says, if you want that sin so much, what am I going to do? I'm going to let go of the rope and you're on your own. And if you want sin, I'll give you sin. And you have to live the consequences of that sin. And so God gives you over and you become darkened and hardened and blinded and even more callous than you were to start out because of your wicked heart. It's Ephesians 4, 18 through 19. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance 
that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So what is the natural condition of human beings that are not saved or not born again and do not have the Holy Spirit? Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is the natural heart of a non-believer? Heart of stone. A dead, stony heart. So, God does not have to infuse or input or directly cause any type of wickedness in the hearts of unregenerate people. They are, they're already spiritually dead. They already have hearts of stone. They're already going to do what they want to do. What this means is, and this is scary, this hardening means that God withholds grace which is necessary to soften their hearts, overcome their deadness, and free them from spiritual bondage. God just doesn't give them grace. And if God doesn't give you grace, and you want to continue to sin, what's going to happen? You're going to continue to sin. And so, the providence of God is over everything. The good things, the bad things, all of life situations. Sometimes, as a Christian, God takes us through hard times as a way to discipline us. And even non-believers, God gives them over to their debased minds and hardens them as an act of judgment upon them. Okay, and here's the last paragraph, paragraph 7. The providence in God, in a general way, includes all creatures, but in a special way, it takes care of his church and arranges all things for its good. Okay. God has a special care for the church that he doesn't have for just your average unregenerate person. So now not only does God take care of each person individually, God takes care of you individually as a Christian, which is wonderful, but he also protects and preserves the church which should help us understand that even when a church family goes through a hard time, it's because God has ordained it to go through a hard time. But in that, he's going to preserve it and protect it. The true church. Now, if you're an apostate church, God may just like remove his lampstand and be like, you guys are done, I'm done with you. Go be apostate and teach false doctrine. But the true church, God will protect and preserve. So, what should, we'll bring this to a close tonight, what should the doctrine of the providence of God produce in us? Three things. We should worship God for his greatness and goodness. Remember, God's doing all things for what? His glory and our good, and that should lead us to be worshiping him. But because we're still accountable for our actions and it's not blind fate and God does disapprove of sin, we should always be repenting of our sins. It's not just because God is providentially in control of all things doesn't mean that we can send our hearts out and do whatever we want. 
we still are responsible to live holy lives before God and always repenting. And then ultimately, we should have joyful assurance that God is working out all things for good. We should be assured of that. So I said Ephesians 1.11 is the, probably the best verse. God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.28 is also the most important verse on God's providence. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And again, it's one of those all things. So God's decree is planned before eternity. God's providence, the outworking of his plan in time, space, and history over all things. I'll stop there. We've got about 10 to 11 minutes for questions, comments, or snide remarks. Well, I get a drink of water. What are some questions you guys have? I know this is a lot of information tonight that may be different that you're not been exposed to, but one of the benefits of going through a confession of faith is it forces you to deal with doctrines that maybe you never even thought of before. So if a person is slipping into sin more and more, can you pray for him? Mm-hmm. And pray and pray for him? Yeah. Should you or... Well, I, I didn't hear the, the question, Gary. So if a person is slipping deeper into sin, mm-hmm. can you pray for him? Yes. Yes, because you should always... If a person's slipping deeper and deeper into sin, number one, you don't know their heart. You don't. Now, there's two different ways to approach it, Gary. One is if the person claims to be a Christian, you would be praying for them differently than if a person was not a Christian. So are you talking about a person that claims to be a Christian and they're falling deeper and deeper into sin? Okay, that is a very dangerous thing. And so you need to be praying for their repentance, praying for God to discipline them, Pray for God to do a work in them to bring him back to himself. And God may have to hit him with a two-by-four in his timing to get their attention, but if they're truly a child of God, they will come back. Now, the thing about it is, is that the scary thing is they may have professed to be a Christian. If they continue in sin and sin, they may not be a Christian. And you don't know that because you can't look into their heart. But either way, if they're not a Christian, they need to become a Christian. And how do they do that? By repenting and believing. If they are a Christian and they're falling away, they need to do the same thing. So your best bet is to pray for their repentance and for God to open their eyes, to God to soften their heart, God to bring them back to himself through whatever means possible in his sovereignty to do so. And if, and if, and if opportunities arise for you to say a word of rebuke, or correction or gospel, depending on the relationship and where you are with that, of warning them. If you continue down this path, you know, you don't just like give them a free pass, but you need to confront them in their sin. Does that, does that answer your question, Gary? Yeah, totally. Okay, good. Yes? My comment's more like a chart I'd like you to look at. Okay, your comment's a chart. <laughs> Do you want me to look at it now? No, after class. Oh, after class. Okay. 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 Charts and graphs. That's easy for me. You must be a visual person. No, that's good. Any 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 way you can learn is is good. Charts, graphs, drawings. Good. Chris, you look like you like you got this 
thinking a lot. Are you? Did I did I blow your mind tonight with things you hadn't thought about before? Absolutely. Okay. Hopefully, it didn't rattle your faith, but made you think more deeply about who God is. All right. Any other questions? All right. So next week, we're shifting gears and we're talking. So these first. These all, the first five chapters have all been really heavy on God, his decree, creation, sovereignty, predestination. Next week, we're going to get into the fall of man. So we're going to talk about Adam and Eve, the original sin um, in the garden, plus original sin and original guilt that we inherit from Adam and Eve, and what it means for us to be born sinful because of what Adam and Eve did. So that's what we're talking about.